I'm in the Martin Luther King Jr. Library in downtown Washington and I'm joined by a black female who's going to give her insight into how America has been over the past few years, how America is at the minute and possibly the future and how she sees it in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement in particular. So can you give us a little bit of your background information maybe when you came to the States and with who? Sure. Um, I was born in Kenya, moved to the United States in 2008 for college. So that was my first year of university. Um, came here with my mom as well. That was August 2008. And so did you go straight into college then? Mm-hmm. I was just straight into my, f- well, into International Students Orientation Week. And then my first, and then New Students Orientation, which that was then followed by my first week of classes. In DC? No, it was in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to leave Kenya? No, not at all. No. Well, yes and no. Um, I guess as a teenager, it's exciting to you know want to explore, and especially coming from an African country, there was a lot of excitement in coming to the U.S. Right, um, you get to see consume all the media about the United States, and there was a part of me that was excited. As a teenager as well, there was a part of me that was a little bit disappointed to leave my friends behind and the newfound freedom that I had as an eighteen-year-old. So. Yeah, I think it was equal parts excitement and a little bit of sadness. But you never stop pining for home. Oh yeah, of course not. <laughs> so you, you get used to that. Yeah. No brothers and sisters coming over with you as a means of support. No, I am an only child. Okay. And can you remember your first... One question, so we're going to move on to the Black Lives Matter movement pretty, pretty rapidly. And I was talking to a couple of people back home in Ireland and I was wondering what questions would they have for... Uh, black people in the US in relation to Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And the first girl that got back to me asked, can you remember the first instance of racism in your life? Okay, um, certainly. And I think before even getting into that, I would like to say that, you know, my experiences being an immigrant in the US would be a lot different for someone who was born and raised here, right? So coming here as an immigrant, you know, even if it was mostly my mother's decision, I chose to be in this country. Um, you know, I, I wanted to study in the U.S. because the opportunities, or at least I, I liked the idea of studying in the U.S. because of the opportunities that that would afford me. Why I want to flag that is because then a lot of um, the black Americans in this country are, children's, are children of formerly enslaved people, right? And those are people who did not have any choice in how they ended up. So that colors your experience slightly differently. Um, but in talking about how... how um, I think there's a lot, when you have choice and you have agency, you know, I'm choosing to be here and at any moment I can leave. So whatever hostility I face, I can always say, you know, I have a place back home. There's a little bit of, it's, it's a different experience because for someone who is American and experiencing racism, these are your people who are treating you like this, right? This is your home where you feel unwelcomed. That is a completely different experience than me who, when I'm experiencing racism, I'm like, yeah, but these are not my people and this is not my home. I have a place back home where people accept me. Does that give you a little bit of extra strength? I don't know that it's strength so much as it's different. I think the bottom line is it's different because one could argue one way or the other that it's more demoralizing for black Americans, but you could also argue that because this is home that you're fighting for, that you're a lot more invested in the outcomes. Where for me at any point, you know, if I get sufficiently frustrated, right, I'm just like, peace out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, cool. Right, so I think it's just a different experience. So 
Yeah, that's an important. That's that's something I didn't know, and I, I, I would never would have guessed that because mm. it's not something I've experienced. So, so when was the first time you could identify that something was going on? So, the you know Kenya as a country, there's a lot of there's the colonial colonial history and the colonial past of Kenya. So to say that I didn't experience racism back home would be a little bit of a mistruth, because. Kenya as a country exists because of white supremacy, because of the colonial history. But for me personally, um, I got I can say one of the first moments I remember experiencing this was being in a beach resort um, in the Kenyan coast, and there was a sign on the parking lot that said "Whites Only Parking," and so this at this point I was maybe ten, perhaps I'm not sure, but that was like the first time that I felt it personally. Um, as I grew up, there were other instances like, you know, white people would get better service um, at restaurants. A lot of it is because of tipping culture, where it's not a very Kenyan thing to tip. Americans, it's ingrained to tip, right? So even traveling abroad, people do tip better. So there's a little bit of that, you know, bias put into that that's not even just about tipping. I think it's just the perception that if you and I were to walk into a restaurant and we didn't seem like we we're in the same party, if we got there at the same time, and even if I got there before you, you would be served before I would be. Does that happen now? Even now, yeah. So I remember at 18, or maybe 17, kind of around the time that I knew that there was a possibility for me to travel to the United States. I remember back in the days of having blogs, I remember writing a blog post because I was really mad at a restaurant and the server had ignored me. And I remember the the kind of punchline of this rant that I was having was that I would travel abroad and come back with an accent and confuse people about, you know, my lineage, my heritage. Because if I have an accent, then this does that proxy I did not articulate it as such. Now I can think of it that way, you know, fifteen years later, but it's the proximity to whiteness that still affords me better treatment. So me sounding American back then I wanted to sound British. <laughs> so me sounding American kind of hints at I have studied abroad and so there's privilege and money associated with that and this when, was something that I was aware of at 18 yeah when you were going so you wanted to have the American accent when you were going home well yeah I wanted well. to have the British accent specifically <laughs> I have complicated feelings about sounding the way that I do right now but yeah yeah because it, the first thing we met you mentioned that mm -hmm. already and that was that blew my mind to think that well, you actually have your own accent, your, you have your Kenyan accent in English also. I do, yeah. It does not sound like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And do you, do you ever use your other accent? I do. Um, so I think this was really a coping mechanism. So going to college, um, you know, one of the things was not being understood, which I would imagine you've probably experienced traveling around the US, right? People <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> right? So not being understood and people looking stressed out when they're talking to you. Um, I always really liked, I enjoyed English as a subject. And this was like a colonial relic where most people, like even in the US, when they're learning English, um, you get to a certain point and you stop learning grammar, right? It's more the literature and the poetry and things like that where for my Kenyan high school education for the entire 12 years, I had a grammar unit in there. And my Kenyan accent is coming a little bit. I had a well, grammar. very well. I know. <laughs> I had a grammar unit for every, every single one of those 12 years. 
um, in high school, then they added literature and poetry and all those other things. But part of the grammar unit was to teach you pronunciation. And I was a very big nerd, and I learned the alpha, not the alpha phonetic, the phonetic alphabet um, when I was in, in high school. And so I would read my dictionary, literally read my dictionary and practice the pronunciation. For years? This was all four years of high school. To change how you your Not answer. necessarily to change, it was more just a fascination because the phonetic alphabet looks ridiculous. And I was just like a nerd who was into, oh my God, this is something that not that many people know. And I wanted to internalize it. I didn't necessarily use it in life, but that meant once I moved here, it was a little bit easier to transition because then I would always practice with the phonetic alphabet. That's very interesting because we in Ireland have the, our, the Irish psyche has been damaged a lot by the British and you know, our language has changed based on the trauma of mm-hmm. what occurred in our country. And I'm wondering if, if, you, if you think the trauma of the racism that you have encountered is, is ingrained in you and do you feel like maybe someday you return to your own accent? So I do have my own accent, usually if I'm safe. So if I feel safe, if I feel comfortable, which unfortunately now I have, you know, I, I equate professional settings with this accent. But if I'm talking to my mom, it's going to change. If I'm talking with my friends back home, it's going to change. Um, I think even with some of our mutual friends, I've known them long enough and I feel like it's a safe space that I often, without even noticing, shift back to my Kenyan accent. And then I'll say something and someone will be like, wait, what was that? <laughs> like, oh. I need to change, I need to switch for you. Um, but yeah, so I still have it. It's kind of, you know, I consider this my professional person, which everyone has that, right? Everyone and then, has that, exactly. Yeah. So this is, this is how I present myself professionally and in situations where, you know, I just met you, um, yeah. in situations where, that are new. But as soon as I go back home, I do switch back into my Kenyan accent, which I will say has caused some very interesting situations where being away for the last, I think, 15 years now, there are things that I don't know about home anymore. And so there are things that are pretty obvious to people who've lived there. And I will show up with my Kenyan accent and be completely clueless about something that's completely basic for everyone else. And you can always see people are confused about why I don't know what's going on. Because if I show up with my American accent, then they're like, okay, that explains it. But it's like, she sounds like one of us, she looks like one of us, but she doesn't know this very fundamental thing about being us. What is going on? Yeah. yeah. So you came over, that's all very interesting, the whole thing in the accents, because it defines, an awful lot of the time, the way we speak defines what's going on in our subconscious, really. <laughs> so you came over uh, with just your mom, you went into college, and you started doing the phonetics, and you learned how to be in a society that would accept you for them as much as, yeah. as, much as it can. So. What's your, what's your relationship like with the Black Lives Matter movement um, currently? And one question that someone texted me before we had this chat was, did you feel like it, do, do you feel like it's an obligation to be part of the movement mm. or do you have a choice? That's a good question. Mm. I think... Despite the name Black, well, it, there's no movement, so it's Black Lives Matter, right? I don't consider it a movement so much as a philosophy and a state of being, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's about drawing attention to the historical injustices that Black people have faced, not just in America. 
And that was something that I really appreciated as a foreigner in the United States that 2020 and the, and the protests in June 2020 sparked a global movement that black people in France were protesting the treatment of black people in France that Syrians were using Black Lives Matter to draw attention to the injustices that they were facing, that Palestinians were doing the same thing, that even in my home country of Kenya, there were Black Lives Matter protests that were happening two, in two phases, I would say. There was one that was more in solidarity to Black Americans, and there was one about Kenyans questioning police mistreatment of Kenyans. So I say that specifically as a foreign person living in the United States because I feel like a lot of the times I've had to it's, it's hard for me to find my place in the U.S., right, as a non-American. So a lot of the times for these movements, they tend to be very America-focused, which is not a bad thing and it's not a negative, but the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that has happened since June 2020 is something that I feel I have found a home in, right? Um, and so do I feel obligated to be a part of it? There's no obligation, but what does it say about you if you disagree with the premise of the movement, you know? What does it say about you if black people are saying, hey, our lives are in danger, hey, we're in trouble, and you disagree with that? Yeah, of course. And do, do, you, feel, do you feel that after, like, the sh some of the many shootings, did you feel like your life was in danger after that for... Was there civil un was there unrest among the whole country with black the black people and you feel threatened after a black person had been shot? The thing is it's not even after. It's not it's always, right? Um again, my experience is slightly different being a non American black person. I've always been aware that as soon as I open my mouth, anyone who would under those circumstances feel threatened by specifically black American people would be like, oh, she's a little bit different. And I'll, I'll give you an example as well. So this was even before the protests, maybe around 2012. Um, New York is notorious, um, and the NYPD specifically, is notorious for stopping black boys, black men and black boys for you know perceived injustices. Sometimes it's just, we're gonna search you, and if we can find something, then you know we found something. Um, and I unfortunately don't have the stats for this, but I remember sometime in 2012, waiting for the train at about one, it was after midnight, um, with a friend of mine and my mom, and there was a boy who showed up and just sat next to us not too far away. It was late, we were all waiting for the train, it was about 30 minutes, and immediately went to sleep, right? This is late night, he's okay. probably kind of just waiting to go to bed. and. A few minutes later, the police show up and immediately start questioning him. And he was sleeping. He was sleeping. As, as best as I know, he got on the platform, you know, organized his things because it's a public space, and then just, you know, slept on his arm just waiting for the mm. train. And immediately start questioning, like, where are you coming from? You know, being and really roughing him up. What I, age was he? Maybe in his teens. 15, 16, 17, somewhere mm. in that range. And my first instinct, because he had sat very quietly next to us, was what's happening, right? What's going on? Did he do something wrong? And I think because of how I sounded and even what my mom sounds like, because she's got a much thicker Kenyan accent, it disarmed them a little bit, right? Where then they were caught off guard. Because he saw what was going on. Yeah. But it was also the accent was like, 
oh, and immediately he asked, are you guys together? And I was like, no, we're not, right? We're not together. And then he continued questioning, but eventually they went away. Con- contrast that with other instances where this has happened and you have video and video and video upon video of people questioning the police and then they get embroiled in the violence, right? I, there's so many things you can say about that inter- interaction because it's you know, not an experiment. But I would not put it past them that because I sound the way that I did, I was considered less of a threat. If I sounded a little bit different, I would have been a threat, right? So because you're not American born, you're less of a threat to yeah, the police? because the police think, I mean, and that's not the case. There are black people of African descent who've been killed, right? That's not always a thing. But I think there's something about the way that I sound. And I've gotten compliments about my accent and, oh, you're so eloquent, you're so articulate, which is a backhanded insult, if ever there was any. <laughs> um, that, that does speak to that. Yeah. Right. Why? That's a, that's. Why is that the case? You would have to ask the cops, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, it's, in a, it's um, an observation I've never heard before. But yeah. It's Stop and frisk is is. I have not been following it up on it recently, um, and I think since De Blasio was in was the mayor of New York, things kind of stopped a little bit, but. Um, it's it's a very fascinating policing history. Okay, and did you slightly moving back to your childhood and your development of years? Did you have did your one of someone over you have to like have a talk with you and like is there such a thing as like the black talk if you like in, in like the same as some hairs might have the sex talk. Like. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, again, this is the part of my experience that would be different is I didn't have that, right? Because, again, growing up in Kenya, everyone around me was black, for the most part. The people in power are black. The police that I'd be encountering are black. So the conversation is slightly different. And also being a woman, excuse me, so being a woman, I I don't have to have that same conversation, right? So that was why. Because women generally society right women also not necessarily perceived as threats right because the the black talk is usually given to black american boys in their teens when they start looking like men because then they're going through puberty and they're taller and they no longer look like kids and so it's just a reminder that by the way you need to be double aware of how you present in this world because then people will see you as a threat so that's the, the crux of that conversation is when you're walking, you need to learn how to slouch. You need to walk as if, you know, just make yourself smaller so that then you look like less of a threat. So I never had to have that conversation. So, so parents have to chat and say, make your frame look smaller, look less imposing. Mm-hmm. This, if, way, if the police... Space. Yeah. And if the police stop you, yes, sir, no, sir, right? Because the use of the sir communicates deference and that communicates something to the police officer so what's your what's your thinking on so this is interlinked with the policing issue what's your thoughts on the amount of black men in prison in comparison to white men I unfortunately have not necessarily studied that too much or researched that particularly but I think you know going back to stop and frisk um there's so many stories of 
people, you know, because you're targeting a particular group, and even for minor infractions that people wouldn't have caused, wouldn't have been caught with before, what that ends up doing is you have a disproportionate amount of a certain group of people in prison, right? Um, I would recommend a movie, 13, which is about the 13th Amendment. I'd recommend that as a, as a good look into the U.S. policing system and the history and how it presents itself presently. Certainly, is it's unfair, um, given like the U.S. incarceration rate. I think U.S. is what position in the world for people in prison? I don't know where it is yeah. in the world, but it's pretty high. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And, and if majority of those people are people of color, what does that say about the system? Yeah. It says a lot, CNN, I was doing some of the research, black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at nearly five times the rate of white Americans according to a new report by the Sentencing Project. So where do... Where... What's the answer? I mean... I think it's... It's very, very obvious when you look at the stats, you talk to black people. And I, I was reading the Black Lives Matter agenda to see where they were going, and their approach is to do it through art, to do it through learning, and to raise the next generation being proud of the fact that they're black but I mean that doesn't stop the imprisonment does it? And that's a good question right because and I think this is a good discussion or thought exercise for individual action versus structural issues right there's a notion within um, I think just generally talking about this topics of um, respectability Right, that if you are educated a certain way, if you dress a certain way, if you present yourself a certain way, that that's going to cause people to treat you better. But a lot of people argue that if someone is like the fact that you're black is a reason why people want to dismiss you, you can dress it up as much as you want, and that's not going to change that. And there are plenty of examples of very prominent black people who've reached, you know certain levels of status who still have to face with racism and that's proof to me that respectability politics don't work you know a lot of the times you hear people say you know oh don't sag your pants because then that makes you look less serious or speak a certain way and you know the fact that i get somewhat favorable treatment is also part of respectability politics because i sound like this right so then that telegraphs certain things about who i am so would you say that the more diluted you are as a black person, the more respect you get then? No, because at the end of the day, people are, are valuing you less because you're black. It's not about how you speak. It's not about how you present your, yourself. So it's your, your argument race. is that you could... Well, are you saying that you could do everything? Because I had a conversation with mm-hmm. a black man on the street there not so long ago, two days ago, and he said that he experienced racism from a young age. He went and he got the college degree. He went and got his job. He works for the government now. He has his car, he wears a suit to work. He does all the things that the white people want the blacks to do. Mm -hmm. And still he has to justify himself every single day. Mm -hmm. So are you you making the same argument that no matter what the black people do, no matter what way they speak, what way they dress, that racism is still going to be prevalent everywhere in this country. Yeah, because it's not about the black people. It's about the people who see the black people as less than human. Right? It's it's not about the 
people who are receiving that treatment. It's about the people who are perpetuating that treatment. So therefore, this Black Lives Matter, their ethos of art, culture, let's make black people proud. You think that's not the right way of going about it? Though? No, I think that's part of it. I think it's part of, you know, there's no one, but one solution that's going to help. Right, there's no one thing. So I think this is also part of, you know, you need that empowerment of people. You need for people to be proud of who they are and proud of their history in complement with changing the structures and changing the institutions, right? You need both of these things because at the end of the day, this is a 400-year history and that, has, that does something to one's psyche, right? But at the end of the day, you still need to complement that with institutional change. Yeah, a term, okay, I agree with that. A term that was brought up as well is uh, race-biased laws. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> so they, it, like, for somebody who's not all that familiar with government laws here, and obviously it's very difficult to familiarize yourself with laws in America because state by state, for the most part, they change. Mm-hmm. So are there laws based on race in the United States? Sorry, that's not my area of familiarity, I would say. So it would be hard for me to speak specifically to different laws, but I can talk about historically some of the things that have happened, that I've happened to study. Um, One was the concept of redlining, right? In, I don't know exactly which years it was, but for a particular time in the history of the U.S., the where where you could rent a home was determined by your race. And um, there are fascinating maps on this as well that show you what the historical documents would say. And in the mapping of a particular neighborhood, they would tell they would grade those neighborhoods from A to D. A being white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, because those were the preferred, right? And then B would be maybe Italians, maybe, I don't even think they had like a, a high enough status at that point. Um, so I would need to look into this more. But D would be black neighborhoods, right? And if you wanted to rent a home, or not rent, if you wanted to buy a home, this was a conversation you'd have with your real realtor to be like, this is the kind of family you are, you should rent in A. Of course, then the value of the homes in zone A was higher than the value of the homes in zone D, right? That's systemic racism. Exactly. So, you know, it doesn't have to be a law, but when you start doing things like that, then that creates a certain history. So, so do you think over time that, that those laws take a long, long time to die out mm-hmm. and we're still living the consequences of them laws now mm-hmm. whom we tell them but do you think over time that the further we get away from these laws that the, the racism will like um, it'll lessen I don't think so so for my work I work a lot with policies and there's policy and there's practice the policy will always be slower than the practice, right? But it also determines what the practice is. I don't, they never, they never work on the same timelines. So you could change the law, but how long is that going to take before it influences the practice, right? It needs a conscious effort to work against that. And a lot of that is what was happening or what is happening with affirmative action, which has been challenged left, right, and center. And it's the concept that, you know, you have somewhat preferential hiring, for example, for people of marginalized identities, which was usually black or female, right? Or other races, basically. And that has been such a prob- has had 
a lot of challenges in the history because people then felt like, oh, it's not fair, it's preferential treatment. But you're looking at the history of these people didn't have the opportunity before, so we need to kind of help them a little bit to move along, right? And however much you can have that, people, there's still ways that that impacts. I haven't looked at this recently, but a few years ago, there was a lot of conversation about affirmative action and flagging that white women had benefited the most for affirmative action, right? Because again, still, this, this is a policy that's in place to say, by the way, we want to have people of other races, people of other identities. But then society still went with like the slightly safer option, right? So there's, there's that too, where people always find ways to skirt the law, I think. So are you, are you hopeful? I'm trying to get an indication of another, another thing that somebody texted me in to say will be how how can people it sounds funny how can people help or like is there a way that like maybe Europeans can help without without trying to sound like a simple answer don't be racist but coming from a black person who is on the receiving end of it have you anything to comment on that like on that question of how how does one help how how do we try and move forward? I know like it's an age old question. It, it, I'm, I'm trying not to make this sound light. No, I know. But the the question was like, how do you help? How does somebody who's unsure how to help the, the crisis? So when you're talking about help, help where help the U.S. Well, anywhere. Mm. I don't know how someone in Ireland could help the U.S without coming here, I think. Um, But I think one thing that I've personally benefited from coming into this country and having to learn the racial history of this country is just by reading and also understanding how I'm implicated in white supremacy. We were talking before recording about whether women can be anti-feminist. And I made the comment that the patriarchy needs women too. White supremacy needs people of color too, right? So in order, and that's just my example. So there are lots of black, brown, Asian people who benefit from white supremacy and who still want to uphold the system. In a similar way, there are a lot of non-American people who can see the issues in America and see race and racism as like a specifically America problem without contending with how their own history is implicated, right? And I prefer white supremacy more than racism because I think racism is a question of power, right? It's about one group having power over the other. Whereas white supremacy really questions how those people who are not in the group of power can still uphold the system, right? So how immigrants coming to the US can still uphold a white supremacist system I talked about how people can treat me favorably because I'm an immigrant here. And a lot of the misconceptions about black Americans are not applied to me because I'm from a different place. Recognizing that that is something that's happening and recognizing that that's my privilege and being willing to challenge that and not perpetuate it is like a first step. So similarly for, I would say maybe Irish people, and again, this is such a generalization, but just thinking about how their own position how how they benefit how 
what kind of privileges people have. Um, unfortunately, I'm, this is my own, you know, um, ignorance, but I will definitely look it up into, the, into it after this, but looking at Irish history, right, and how that has interacted even with colonialism, if, if at all, right, and seeing what that does. My favorite example of a lot of this is Scandinavian countries can talk about how they're so green and eco-friendly, but that's because they import all the non-green industries to other places in the world, right? Switzerland can talk about how neutral it is all day, but as the world's leader in chocolate, they don't grow the chocolate in Switzerland. Where does the chocolate come from? It comes from Ghana, you know? Are you thinking about what that does to Ghana for Switzerland to have its chocolate? For Switzerland to be the name in chocolate, right? What does it mean for Norway to be such an ideal place that everybody looks to when most of the people in Norway look the same? Think about what happened in Denmark, I think, um, particularly with like Muslim immigrants coming into Denmark and how they were treated, you know? So there are lots of ways that even if you're not in America, we are implicated in white supremacy. So I think, first of all, it's recognizing that race and racism is not just an America problem, which is why I really liked the protest and how other places took it up. Because I think before this conversation, before June 2020, it always felt a lot of the times that, you know, when I was talking to Europeans and I said I lived in America, the first reaction is always cl a clutching of pearls and being like, oh my God, it must be so difficult for you in America, right? And sure, it is. But what about black people in, in Europe? What are they experiencing, right? So thinking about that and recognizing that it's not race and racism just because America may be the loudest about talking about it is not just an America problem is very important, you know? Yeah, trying try and control your own environment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but look, what goes through your mind when a young black person is shot? Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Is it like? Is it like? Have we, have we come any distance at all? To the Black Lives Matter movement, is it helping? Hmm. Ah. Uh, I don't think this can be pinned on the Black Lives Matter movement, necessarily. It's not about whether it's helping or not helping. You know? There needs to be there needs to be an organization regardless because I think since we've got to know each other a little bit that I was of the opinion that if you give something energy something that's creating is making the problem worse. And then you have the argument that we already spoke about whereas you have Black Lives Matter, well all lives matter. And I have learned a lot from you to say that yeah, all lives matter that Black people aren't saying all lives don't matter. Mm -hmm. Your point is you've trained, you have to try and highlight the group that's marginalised in order in order to reach the equality, mm -hmm. which is like which is a wonderful lesson to learn and a, a great reason for having the chat. So moving forward, are you active in in any group or do you just you just tr look after your yourself? That sounds selfish but you're yeah. just no but you're just accountable for your own actions your own words and the influence you have on people 
as getting back to an earlier question, do you feel compelled to be part of Black Lives Matter, or do you feel like you need to fight this, or have you enough going on yourself to be responsible for you? Yeah, no, I, I think, I think, if if I was able to be like, I have enough going on to be responsible only for me, that would be an absolute privilege. Um, so I'm, I couldn't say like I have a membership in Black Lives Matter as a movement but I support the aims of, of what they're trying to achieve. Um, and so in that regard, yes. How do I fight this? This is my own cynicism and my own disillusionment. Um, and I think, oh no. And I think it also ties into my own political history in Kenya that I, I you know, I know this is yeah like I said this is my own disillusionment I'm not actively part of any groups but that's not a testament to whether or not the group is effective that's just my own issues but I think I do work on a one-on-one level um I think in the work that I do particularly I try as much as possible to integrate these questions into it so for my master's degree I consider myself an urban political ecologist or at least an enthusiast of urban political ecology and that's a question of looking at how power plays out in these questions of power and structural racism and and gender and all of these questions of marginalization play out in the environment Um, and so that's what political ecology seeks to do so these are questions that I bring into my work um I think on a one-to-one, I do like to have these conversations with people. In college, I was a very active member of the Black Students' Union. Um, but I think also activism, activism is hard, and it takes time, and it, you need to show up daily. And I think only a particular group of people have that capacity, and, and, it's, and we don't really appreciate the work that it takes, right? So everything that happened in June 2020, and even with um, previous movements, it can seem that it as if it sparked and happened in one particular instant, but there's a lot of work that went behind all of that that we don't fully appreciate. So that I don't know that I have the fortitude for the work of activism, specifically as a, because it is, it is a job, it is a work that people do. I'm not doing activism work, but I'm trying as best as possible in my life to support that work and support the people who do that work. I know, and, and it's and to address, you're doing marvelously to address the question and to come up, like to think about it long enough to know what what way you think about it. And to have that in itself is, it's, it's, it's so hurtful to think of how you think about it, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But yet you haven't avoided the question of, and you're not trying to avoid the reality of racism. No, so, I, I can't. It's, yeah, it's a edu- luxury that I don't have. Yeah. Yeah. But you're educating me and you're educating people listening in and whoever else you talk to in the future. One last thing I want to talk to you about is the education of children mm. in relation to race. So you didn't go to school in the USA, so maybe you don't know as much as I would hope. But do you think there's enough being done to create more of a togetherness. I'm speaking, you know, with zero experience. So 
I would say that's one. But one of the things that I find when talking to kids about race that I particularly have a problem with is there's always too much of an emphasis of, oh, but people are all the same. You know, our blood runs red deep within. You know, underneath we're all the same. Yeah, that's true. But that then does not acknowledge that we may be the same, which we are, but we get different treatment. Yeah, that's a really, that's a resounding point that you're making time and time again. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's one thing that I do have a problem with a lot of the times when I hear people talking about, you know, the ways that they've talked about race with their kids, it's always about a, a reassertion that we're the same. Nobody, except the racists, are arguing that we're not the same. What people are trying to flag, what the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to flag, what all these conversations about race and other types of identities are trying to flag is because I was born a certain way, I get different treatment. And that's not right, because fundamentally, we are the same. We should have equal opportunity, right? But because I was, because of an accident of birth, I didn't choose the skin that I was born in. I didn't choose the gender that I was born with, right? But because of that, then I have to have a different, like different treatment. That is a problem. And so I wish more people, when talking to their kids, would push that conversation further. Because I think what then that happens is you then have people who will be so happy to tell you that they don't see race, right? Because that's supposed to be a good thing. The recognition of difference is not the problem. You and I are different, right? You have short hair, you have fair skin, I have dark skin, my hair's in braids. Recognizing those differences is not the problem. Treating us differently because of those differences is the problem. So I wish people would push further so that people are more comfortable to acknowledge the difference, appreciate the difference, but recognize that fundamentally, even though we look different, sound different, or from different backgrounds, you need to treat people as people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point. It's the, same, it's the same kind of thinking behind the LGBTQ issues. Mm-hmm. If the person wants you to recognize their, their differences, recognize the differences, but at the end of the day, treat them the same. Mm-hmm. So, so, I think um, I really enjoyed the, the chat. Um, I've learned a great deal because coming from Ireland, we get the news. It's like Black Lives Matter, people are dropping the knee. And I never really understood is highlighting the issue, is that making, is that like stopping racism? Like, is that stopping anything? Mm-hmm. Or is it highlighting uh, racism? So, yeah. Like, and like I told you when we were discussing this earlier, the problem is not highlighting the issue, right? Because if you, like, no problem ever went away because you did not talk about it. You have to acknowledge that there's a problem as a first step to trying to identify how to fix the problem. And for a lot of the discomfort in talking about race and flagging racism and be like, oh, why do you always have to bring it back to that? That lot, a lot of discomfort in that is the resistance to, it is, it's difficult to solve race. I don't think we're probably ever going to, this is my own cynicism again, I don't know that we're ever going to solve 
racism in my lifetime, probably not even in the next generation's lifetime. And you have to be, to, to contend with that. And that is a difficult place to be, to recognize that you, like if there are ways that I am implicated in racism and white supremacy, nobody wants to feel responsible, right? And in a way, if you ignore the problem and it doesn't exist, people think that absolves them. Whereas, no, I have to sit and think about things that I have said, things that I have done that still uphold the racist system. Yeah, that's a hard thing to do. That's yeah. what, that's, that's how you overcome. Mm-hmm. Thanks a million for talking to me. Sure. Wish you all the best. I was going to ask a question. Oh, yeah. We can keep this um, How was the reception for Black Lives Matter in, in, in Ireland? What was the reception? Very strong, I would say, in general. But definitely, we just get it on the news. And I think, I think for the most part, Irish people would be able to see that sure, the stats are there, that black people are being incarcerated five times more likely, like Irish people would know that. So I wouldn't think there was, much, there was a whole lot done for the general public to send over support. Yeah, no, it's not even about sending over support. Um, I think some of, some of my, like the- but Just to interrupt you for one sorry, second. No Irish people would have been part of the colony, would, would have been one of the colonies of the British Empire for such a long time. So I think for the most part, Irish people would empathize with the underdog. Mm-hmm. So I would say that we would definitely grieve for black people. Mm-hmm. And it's not so long ago that in the 60s there was signs with no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. So I think if you're, if you're asking for a general question of how Irish people would have received it, it would have been f- with great sympathy. Yeah. So that's specific to black Americans. But I'm sure they're black Irish people. Yeah. How did they feel about Black Lives Matter? Were there those conversations? I think that would be a good perspective to look into. And why I bring that up is the example of Black Lives Matter in Kenya. You know, there was the one group that was supporting Black Americans, and that was a much more diverse and economically affluent group of people, right? It was people who were American living in Kenya or had American friends, and that tends to be people of a particular social class. The second protest was by Kenyans protesting Kenyan police treatment of Kenyans. And ironically enough, that second protest did end up in violence, right? It's a Black Lives Matter movement protest um, where people are protesting police brutality, where then the police show up to be brutal to people. Um, I thought I loved the irony of that because if you look at Kenya, the people in power are black, right? The people who make the decisions are black. So in that particular case, it's not about the racial difference. It's about a class difference, right? And so this is speaking to how all of these countries took the movement into and, 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 and applied it to their own context, not necessarily as co-opting the movement, but recognizing that we're all together in this struggle, right? All oppression is connected. How does it present itself in other cases? So I think it would be an interesting facet as well just to look into the response in Ireland, because it could be race. Could be immigration status, could be class, right? Yeah, could be a number of things. Yeah. Well, thanks a million, Wendy. Sure. Really appreciate it.